At some point, so much of December is the, the Christmas season that is love and joy and family and all these sort of warm, sentimental ideas. And as people even start 2023, there's probably a lot of hope, a lot of expectations how 2023 is going to be different. This is going to be the year that uh, you, you really conquer those goals or uh, you really get over that addiction or you really advance your career or finish school, whatever it may be. So many uh, dreams and hopes that all come with the start of a new year. This is going to be your year. But what if circumstances still pan out differently? What if this year ends up being wrought with difficult circumstances, hardships, a lot of turns to the story that you had planned out for 2023, what happens then? It's interesting because I think so often we gloss over this final part of the Christmas story. And, And we've even moved it into January and didn't include it in the series in December. And we find Mary kind of left off in December full of favor, right? People will rise up and call her blessed. Joseph is affirming that he is going to stick this out, that this child is truly the work of the Holy Spirit. Yahweh has done a work. The Messiah is here. All hope is at hand. And then what happens? The whole story just goes south really quickly. It's like, Jesus is here, crash and burn, right? Like, imagine, like, let's put ourselves into the characters of the story. Not, not only have you been surprised to be pregnant and while you have not had any relations with a man, but now the two of them are coming together. They're probably ostracized in some ways or shamed by the culture around them. They, because of a census by Rome, because they're probably increasing taxes, had made you go down to your uh, husband's family's area of Bethlehem. Um, and there's no midwives. There's no family for, for Mary to give birth to this child. So it's all just chaos. And then soon after your baby is born, your husband gets this dream and finds out, hey, the, the king has a price on your child's head, and you need to run. And, and they have to just hightail it out of town, probably as quickly as they can. And maybe they have family, maybe there's some connection to Egypt, who knows, there were a lot of Jews in the diaspora of Egypt, but they decide to head down to Egypt, riding on a donkey, getting out of town. And what do you think Mary was thinking? Or Joseph was thinking? Do you think they sit there and go, you know what, I feel so blessed and favored right now. Or do you think they're like, what has happened? God, where are you in this? I thought the Messiah was here. I thought this was all hope that he was going to be the Prince of Peace to restore all things. And yet, everything of the start of the story is just chaos and not probably what they expected in that moment. There's quite a famous painting from that journey by Merzen called The Rest on a Flight of Egypt, and they end up in this very foreign land. And in this picture, I mean, Joseph's lying on the ground, Mary's holding baby Jesus, she's laying on him, some sort of a sphinx or something, and it just shows him exhausted. And she's probably getting word that, hey, back back in town, um, Herod has just killed all these babies. 
And then they eventually do decide to go back. They get another dream and go back to town. And when they go back to town, uh, another Herod's in charge. And he's just as bad as his father, if not worse. And they have to end up in Nazareth, just kind of podunk stick town. That's the story. And at some point, it's the question that, that, that um, I think so many of us probably deal with. Because for, for so many of us, I think it could go a lot of different ways. Are we disillusioned in this moment? Would we be fearful? Would we be embittered? Would we be jaded that all the things that probably they were hoping for or expecting are not turning out the way they see? And I would argue what Matthew 2 is sort of challenging us to think about is what happens in those moments. How do we think about all of our circumstances when storms come? And I think it challenges the myth of religious fulfillment. That that if I just invite Jesus in, that he's sort of this product. I think Don Miller used to talk about this a lot. That Jesus is this product, almost like soap for your dishwasher or something like that. That Jesus is this product. And if I just accept this product, if I just buy this product, then it will fulfill all these things for me and sort out my life and help my sort of dreams or aspirations to come true. And we might not explicitly always talk about that, but it is a form of a prosperity gospel. That if I have all these hopes and dreams that since God is good, he will make those dreams come true. What happens when those things don't turn out? Or even worse, if things get way more difficult than expected. And this text today, I would argue, is super biblically rich. There's some complexity to it. I think Matthew's doing all sorts of amazing things, and we'll unpack some of that. But I think Matthew is also being incredibly pastoral as he writes this, as if Matthew wants to address where, where is God when the circumstances go south, when all the things, when tragedy strikes your life. And it's broken down sort of in three patterns. He kind of talks about a story and then talks about a fulfillment. And talks about a story, talks about fulfillment. Talks about a story, talks about fulfillment. So we'll, maybe Matthew's Baptist and likes three-part sermons. But that's what we're going to (laughs) do. So first movement, starting at verse 13. Now when they had departed, who's the they? Magi, wise men, yes, all the different names for them. Yeah, they got out of town, the, the wonderful people that show up to the king and go, hey, I hear there's a new king, um, which is probably not the best way to approach a king. Um, it's like approaching the president being like, hey, I heard there's another president. Um, so that's what they do. And they show up. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So once again, new, new family, young married couple, find out it's not safe, head south, um, and end up in Egypt. And so as you read the story, things about it should be sounding familiar, right? Like Matthew has layers here. And we encounter Joseph, he's having more dreams. Where have we heard about Joseph, a dreamer? Right, Genesis, like Israel ended up in where? Because of Joseph. 
in Egypt. Like Joseph is the reason that, that as part of the storyline, as part of uh, uh, the history of Israel, by the end of Genesis, all of Israel ends up down in Egypt because of this dreamer named Joseph who ultimately has these dreams that, that people have to interpret. So once again, we get this Joseph, the dreamer. It's almost like every other verse. It's like, hey, and then Joseph had another dream, and then Joseph had this dream. And so um, then there's a story of God raising up this deliverer, and there's an insecure, power-hungry king who's using violence to thwart that work. Where have we heard that one before? Yes, Pharaoh, right? This is the Exodus story. The Exodus story, God's people down in Egypt. And that's why I think we'll go to that next line in the story. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, who's he quoting? If you have footnotes, maybe your footnotes might tell you. What is that verse from? Hosea, yes. So this is good Bible practicing. So Hosea, now, I mentioned back in December, I think the gospel writers do very interesting things with the prophets. I think they have unique ways of dealing with the prophets telling story. Now, in, in most of our minds, we'd read that line and keep moving on, and we'd be like, yeah, uh, uh, clearly Hosea maybe was sitting there, and he has this vision, and in his vision, he saw um, this couple heading south and, and going to Egypt, and then ultimately, they had a baby, and they get called back, and, and they leave Egypt, and that's how we visualize Hosea maybe having this prophetic moment, and that everybody who's been waiting for this verse to be fulfilled in Scripture, right? That's, that tends to be sometimes how we think about it, almost like this Nostradamus understanding of how prophecy works. But let's look at Hosea. Let's just, just for the practice of understanding the weirdness of how uh, the, the gospel writers deal with prophecy. Hosea 11, starting at verse 1. When Israel was a child, I, this is Yahweh speaking, loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. And the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning, um, burn, burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to work, walk, and I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. Okay. How much of verse 1 is about a young married couple with a child who is coming up out of Egypt? If you were reading, if you were a reader of Hosea, how much of that is like, oh, we're just waiting for this verse to be fulfilled? It's not. It's, it's, it's clearly a verse about Egypt because the child that, that God calls ultimately starts worshiping idols and stuff like that. So if it's about Jesus, we got a big problem, right? And, and that's, that's what, so, so, so what is Matthew doing by saying this is to fulfill verse one of Hosea 11. Not that he said that, but because there's no verses and numbers at this point. But Hosea is reflecting on the Exodus story, right? Hosea is looking back at the Exodus story, and you're like, what he calls him the son? Yes, Exodus 4 calls Israel's God's firstborn son. I hope we know that. That's, if you want to know who God's firstborn son, the first time in Scripture is, it's actually Israel before it is Jesus. Firstborn son brought out of Egypt, brought out of slavery, brought to the promised land, and they start worshiping idols, and it all goes south from there. So Matthew, I think, is looking at that story, the story of Israel, the story of bringing these people out of Israel, looking at, at the narrative that is the story of Israel, and he will constantly connect the life, death, resurrection, sending of the Spirit, all of that to the story of, like, the story of Israel to Jesus himself. He will constantly, all these, as if Israel's story is also Jesus' story. As if Jesus is the, the better, the truer version of Israel. 
So, once again, is this the first time a selfish, powerful human has tried to thwart God's work of saving his people? No. And Matthew's reminding his listeners of that. Look, this powerful leader has, is, is bringing death upon all these babies in town. But hey, guys, we've been here before. The train hasn't gone off the tracks. God still knows how to handle this. This is still going to work out. And this son of God is going through the same story of Israel, the first son of God, went through. And we're going to see this over the next chapter. We're going to see this all throughout the book of Matthew, but we're going to see this all over the next chapter. Um, So uh, here's a bit of a chart. I made the slide, but I didn't put it in my notes. And so you have the sort of storyline of Israel's exodus. What they do, they, they, they journey to Egypt. They end up down in Egypt at some point because of Joseph and his dreams and ultimately famine and everything else causes them all to be in Egypt. Eventually a pharaoh comes up, decides he wants to kill all the young children uh, in Israel. Uh, ultimately Moses escapes, but um, there's an oppressive king that shows up in the story God's son is called out, and as I said, Exodus 4, the the story, actually the burning bush tells Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my firstborn child go in in Israel. And so uh, the the youngest child is called out, which is what the Exodus is. They end up sort of being chased by the army. It's chaotic. There's there's disorder. There's the wondering of, will this actually work? They end up at the Red Sea. There's water there. There's things like spirit and ruach. We're going to deal with this a little more in the next two weeks with uh, the baptism of Jesus. God speaks in this moment and ultimately um, delivers his people. And so uh, you get the deliverance to the other side of the Red Sea. Um, and then at that point, you expect like order to come. Shalom, peace, everything to be restored as it is. Um, But they're going to be tested to see if that's true. And we're going to find out Israel has 40 years in the desert and the test doesn't really work and they're never quite complete. Okay, what do we see in Matthew? Journey to Egypt, right? We see Matthew, or um, Joseph and Mary and and Jesus go down to Egypt. We see an oppressive king in the storyline who's trying to kill all of the children. God's son is called out as Hosea, as the quoting of Hosea ultimately is speaking to. Um, And we're going to see the question of disorder, chaos, and water and spirit. So we're going to see, we're going to get there in the next two weeks. And there's language all over the baptistry of Jesus that's going to draw some of this out. God will speak, which he also does at the baptism of Jesus, and then we should expect, all right, is, is this the moment where we are restored? And then we're going to get a period of 40 days to test again. And so we're going to see all these elements that Matthew is trying to draw our minds and our imaginations to, and even more so the first century Israelites who are, who are converting to Christianity to go, hey, we've been here before, guys. Hope is not lost. We know what the story, how the story works. And it's the way that God sort of enters in to the mess. So even amidst the historic circumstances, is God surprised? And I think Matthew's like, no way. He's not caught off guard by the evil of Herod. Still God working his redemptive process. As Sarah said uh, in preparing for the sermon to me, she says, it's almost like you can hear Jesus say that I too had plans and thought it would work out. In one way, it didn't. And I, too, know what it means to be called in one direction and place and then in an opposite place. I, too, know what it's like to be a refugee. I, too, know what it's like to be the cause even of many possible deaths. 
I too know more and know all and more of those same struggles that we all know and the questions we're asking. And Jesus can relate. Verse 16, then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old or under according to the the time that he um, had ascertained from the wise men. Uh, So uh, just by archeology span and all, this is probably somewhere around 50 or so um, babies probably in Bethlehem at that time um, that were killed in this moment. And as I said, Mary probably receives news. It's probably devastating to her. And once again, there's probably a thought of like, has God abandoned ship? If you were a, 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 a young family living in Bethlehem, it surely wouldn't feel like the Messiah has come and we are now blessed. But Matthew's going to present another option for us to think through. Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So uh, this is coming. uh, We find the name of Jeremiah here. It's coming from Jeremiah, 600 years, uh, predating Jesus. Jeremiah was there for the most tragic event in Israel's history, which was ultimately um, captivity, Babylon. This outside group comes, raids Israel. Um, They siege and destroy Jerusalem. They burn the city to the ground. And there were many survivors, and they assemble all the survivors in Ramah and and take them back to Babylon. And Jeremiah writes about it. He's he's there during the time um, and grieving and mourning the whole tragedy. And he says this. This is Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentations of bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of their enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. And so Jeremiah himself is is mourning and lamenting the loss and destruction that has come to the people as they end up in exile. But, and and once again, these are all like tools that are helpful. There's not enough parchment for all these gospel writers to spend chapters quoting all these old prophets. And particularly Matthew, who's writing to a primarily Jewish crowd, all he's got to do is give one line. And, and they have memorized their Old Testament. And so they, they know the broader context. They know the larger stories. They know what's, what verse that's coming out of and what the storyline is in those texts. And so um, and this was pre-numbering too. So it's not even proof texting and things like that. This is fully tipping their hat to go, you know what Jeremiah said about this before. And yes, we do talk about Rachel weeping and sadness, but we do talk about hope. That Yahweh stays true to his promises, and the remnant will come back to God and will fulfill the promises to bless all nations. So who's Rachel? Right? We, we, have, we have patriarchs and matriarchs in, in the Old Testament, right? Abraham and Sarah, right? Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and multiple women, right? <laughs> Jacob, he's a problem. But um, he's got multiple uh, uh, wives and, and women in his storyline. And he has one who's like, seems hands above his, his sort of favorite. Um, 
and, and, it's, and it's Rachel. And, and she gives birth to Joseph and, and Benjamin, uh, who uh, play out this, the storyline of Joseph and, and Egypt and everything else, but his favorite. And in Genesis 35, we get the story of Rachel um, giving birth to, to Benjamin, the, the youngest of all the 12 tribe uh, sons. And she, her birth obviously seems to be complicated. She's, she's going to die giving birth to this child. Um, and as, as the child comes out, she tells Jacob to name him like Benoni, which is like son of my anguish. And, and she dies. And Jacob, who's like, seems to favor Rachel easily more than any of other's wives, like, I can't, I can't name my child that, and names him Benjamin, which is a much more positive name. Jeremiah here is depicting this Rachel, who, who ultimately becomes one of the, the, the archetypes for, for the matriarchy of Israel, the sort of um, mother of Israel, even though she didn't get birth to all the tribes or anything like that, but she becomes this archetype. And she's weeping over her children. She's weeping over the nation as they're gathered up and killed in exile to Babylon. And her weeping, sort of this, this metaphor of her weeping over all of the people, over the fate of the Israelites. And, and just for uh, additional reference, uh, here's a map. I love maps. It's like the best part of the back of your Bible are these amazing maps. Um, and just so you know, uh, so we've got uh, Nazareth way up top. We've got Caesarea uh, Maritima, which we'll deal with in the storylines as we go. Um, Nazareth up at the top, um, which is where they were when they get the announcement that they're pregnant and going to have a baby. Uh, they end up going down to Bethlehem, uh, which is just uh, down kind of right by the Dead Sea, which is the bigger body of water inland. Uh, they give birth to Bethlehem, head obviously down to uh, Egypt. And you know where Rachel is buried? Bethlehem, just on the outskirts of town. So bringing in this Rachel story is just that much more important. And then Ramah is just up the road from that area as well. And so Matthew's using all of these parts of the story, all these things that are all so close together and all parts of their legend and all parts of their storytelling and all parts of who they are as a people and bringing it all to the table. And Matthew picks this up. It's like a poet almost saying like, hey, um, like 9-11 happened, it's a tragedy. And like George and Martha Washington are just weeping over the loss of life because of it. And I think Matthew's doing the same thing and saying like, look, where's God in this tragedy? Well, we've been here before. And Jeremiah spoke about this. And we use the metaphor of Rachel weeping over her children and, and sort of representing God's sort of sadness over the death and destruction of his own people. He's not absent. I mean, he grieves the loss of life too. And just as much as God's not absent in the story of Joseph and Mary, God is not absent in the grieving that's actually happening in Bethlehem as well, the continuing to suffer under sin and death that's happening for all of his people. And this is the very thing that Jesus has come to ultimately do. But let's keep going. Verse 19, when Herod died... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So, ah, oh, we're finally going to catch a break. This is great. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. And he's likely going to go back to Bethlehem. So they might have been working in Nazareth for some reason, but Bethlehem is really the home for Joseph. This is where his family lives. Um, he's likely bringing um, his family back to this town. Uh, that would be the, the likely place. This is in Judah. This is a certain area of the country. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, 
Judah, in place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he would, <laughs> Joseph the dreamer, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the city of Nazareth. Now, when Herod died, uh, this will play out in the storyline throughout the Gospels, uh, he had three sons. Three sons get sort of divvied up the property uh, that Herod was in charge of, which is sort of all of Israel. Um, You have Herod Archelaus, who gets most of Judah, which is to the south. Um, You get Herod Antipas, who's sort of the Herod we'll see Jesus sort of have some interactions with uh, as well, up to the north. He's stationed in Tiberias, right on the Sea of Galilee. And then uh, Philip. Uh, So uh, we'll we'll deal with the story of Caesarea Philippi, which is like Philip's little town way up to the north in Israel as well. Archelaus was known for his cruelty. Uh, He was so bad that he got ousted quicker than the other two brothers ever did. After 10 years of his rule, uh, people decided to really kick him out. Um, There's actually this great story that when he was going to be appointed over Judah, a bunch of people sailed to Rome to try to make sure that he doesn't become the Caesar. And that story is going to appear later in Matthew as well. So you have all this. They end up going to Bethlehem. And they realize Archelaus is in charge, and in a dream, they go 80 more miles up to Mary's hometown, this small podunk town of Nazareth, like nowheresville, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that you would be a Nazarene. And once again, this has got to be disappointment, tragedy, or inconvenience. Like, this is not where they want it to be. It seems like they wanted to settle in Judah first, but in a dream, they've been told no, And they end up here. And God's still fulfilling his purposes. Now, who is Matthew quoting when he says his name shall be a Nazarene? The the prophets? That's all we get is this vague prophets line. And not only that, if you look for his name will be a Nazarene, it's not in the prophets. Because Nazarene had only existed for about 100 years up to this point at Jesus' time. So what is happening in the storyline? What is God doing? What is Matthew doing by talking about this? Well, this is like Bible geeky as well. I think Matthew's doing a tremendous wordplay. Because at some point in the prophets, and I think it started in Isaiah 11, you get these prophecies that speak like this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And what Isaiah's doing is talking about, hey, the, the, the people will be in exile. The line of David will be like this tree that's cut down. But, and, and he picks up on this metaphor using sort of horticulture. It's like, but there's going to be sprouts. That, there'll be a sprout that'll come out from that same root system, the same stump that, that's been chopped down. There'll be the sprout that'll pop back up. That'll be the king in line like David. And Jeremiah is going to use this. And Zechariah is going to use this, 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 this language. And the, Messi- and the Messiah starts being considered this sort of like branch character. He actually gets called like stick man. Uh, and guess what Nazareth means? It means stick town. The, the name of the city is like branch town, stick town. So when we talk about the sticks, maybe we're just talking about Nazareth. Um, <laughs> It's a tiny village in the hill. Like even one of the disciples of Jesus goes, can anything good come from Nazareth? Because they had such a negative view of this little tiny podunk town in Nazareth. And I think Matthew is just being clever and profound. That this future king is going to be born, this branch, and Jesus now is from this city called Branch Town, Stick Town. 
And the language of the branch that Isaiah will use, he, he uses it in some of the most crucial descriptions of this coming Messiah. Like Isaiah 53. For he will grow up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, and he was despised, and he esteemed him not. We esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And in this place that Jesus was raised, this place that might have been a total disappointment to his parents. It became a symbol of what Jesus came to do. Where is God in the midst of human tragedy? God is revealed in Jesus and Emmanuel. But it's not to make our wildest dreams come true. God becomes the subject of the same tragedy and suffering that we're acquainted with. That's what we will see. That's what the writer of Hebrews is hitting on multiple times. Say, no, we we have a high priest that knows this. It's connected to the branch. He's going to be the one who suffers on our behalf. That's what the branch does, according to Isaiah. So blessed, favored? Well, it looks like a God who has entered our world. That's the blessed and favored. And perhaps our definition of what blessed should be, which should simply be, I'm blessed because God is with me. Want to know you're favored? Because God is with you. Whether it's the valley of the shadow of death or on top of a mountain having this vision with Moses and Elijah, and we'll get to that story too, it's amazing. Whether it's either one of those locations, guess what? You are favored because God is with you. And God so loved the world that the evils of Herod, the religious leaders, Rome itself, could not thwart his plans. And the victory is through an act of suffering and death. That is where the victory lied. And so I think sometimes, I mean, Sarah and I talk about this all the time. I think sometimes we we get, we look at people whose lives are going well and go, man, they're really favored by God. And we look through some of us who are going through just the ringer and feel like God has forgotten us. But the very nature of the gospel tells us that is a lie. When you ask, where is God? What is he up to? Surely you must be asleep at the wheel. And Matthew invites us into this chapter. He says, look, God is still with you. And there's some work he's doing. And we may not know. It may not look like what we expect. It may not look like all of our dreams coming true. But what are we looking for? Are our definitions of blessing and favor ours, or are they God's? And hear me, that doesn't mean you don't want reprieve and you don't want the season to end and you don't want restoration and all those things. I I, I totally get that. When all things are restored one day, when there's no more crying, when there's no more, gosh, that's something we long for. And every time we play I Kingdom Come, we are praying for that. But in the meantime, we, we should be really careful about our definitions of what blessed and favored is versus 
my circumstances and suffering and God has forgotten me. And God's reminder, it's very hope in this moment, it's saying, I have not. So let's take a moment as we sort of, something about Sunday should be like peace <laughs> in, in the midst of the chaos that exists for most of us six days a week. When we're here repairing doors in the middle of the night and doing stuff like that. To slow down and to remember one of the most mysterious truths of our faith. A truth that we've said multiple times in December. But to remember God is with us. Like if you've put your faith in Jesus, God is mysteriously with you. You are united to him. He has put his Spirit in you. He is here. He is present with us. And even when we don't have answers or don't like how things are going and we can't see God in there, we have reminders. We have reminders like this cup and this bread. And so before we take from the table, and we'll set it up, but I want us to just like pause and slow down. And to remember some of the things that God has said to his people. Like in Exodus 33, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. He's not saying my presence will go with you and all your circumstances are going to be worked out. He didn't say I will go with you and every one of your wildest dreams is going to come true. But he says, look, I will give you rest. My, my, my yoke is an easy one. The circumstances may not be easy, but Jesus does a, a supernatural work in our hearts to ease it because he's always there. So I saw him, David will say in Psalm 139, where can I escape from your spirit? Where can I flee from your If I go up to heaven, you're, you're there already. If I make my bed, even in death, you are there. To fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even when your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night. But even darkness is not dark for you. And the night shines like the day. And darkness and light are alike to you. So let's take a moment. Let's just pray. And we'll be quiet. And as I said, I know some of you are just going through it. And maybe you aren't yet. But guess what? It's coming <laughs> at some point. And to take a moment and just pause. And God doesn't give all the answers to Mary and Joseph. God doesn't give all the answers often to us. But just to be reminded that God, you are with us. And at some point, that's enough. So let's just pray for that. So God, we remember you are with us. That through the work on your cross, through dealing with sin in our own lives, in this world, then ultimately you made a way to dwell in each of us, that you're not confined to a, a building or a specific location, that you are with us, even to the ends of the age.
So God, as we come to this table, may we remember that, celebrate that mysterious fact that we probably all struggled to fully understand. And help remind us even when this week, this month, 2023, is hard. It's not what we expected. There's been a lot of turns along the path that we did not anticipate. Or maybe that we are already in the storm and just wanting some level of hope. God, remind us that you are with us, even in our grief, even in our sorrow and our confusion, that you are acquainted, that you too are a man of sorrows. I pray all this in your name. Amen.